Today's episode is brought to you by GCN Plus, the place to watch all the best live bike racing and loads of brilliant cycling films too. This fortnight, catch Liège, Baston Liège live, highlights of Flesh Wallonne, plus the build to the Giro d'Italia. And if you get an annual pass to GCN Plus now, you'll get a whole season's worth of action for less than half the price of 12 monthly subscriptions. And you'll be able to watch all your favourite races, including grand tours, monuments, classics, major stage races and more, live and ad-free on GCN+, Plus, including all 259 gruelling kilometres of cycling's oldest race, Liège-Bastogne-Liège, on the 23rd of March. Plus that crucial Grand Tour form predictor, the Tour de Romandie, which kicks off on the 25th of April. Along with all this live action, GCN Plus has on-demand highlights and replays, proper analysis from ex-pros such as Magnus Backstead and Danny Rowe, and the exclusive World of Cycling show, a weekly roundup of the must-see moments and major talking points in road, gravel and cyclocross. GCN Plus also has a huge library of exclusive cycling films and documentaries with new releases added every week. You can watch it all on any of your devices and screens so you never need to miss a key moment again. All of our UK listeners can get 15% off an annual GCN Plus subscription by heading on over to gcn.eu forward slash cyclist15. Welcome back to another episode of the Cyclist Magazine podcast. I'm Emma Cole and today I'm back with Robin. How's it going and where are you at the minute? That does not look like Manchester. Uh, honestly, it's it's all so great. It can all be the same place. But yeah, no, I'm actually in Swindon. Came down here to record some some podcasts. Uh, and I'm just, I'm so excited for this one. Oh, uh, yeah. Tell us, why are you excited about this particular guest, Robin? Well, we've got the wonderful Orla Shenwi on the show for us today. And honestly, me and her could talk the hind leg off a donkey. So I'm very excited to see how this goes. Uh, she's she's just been such an inspiration for me, like as a woman in cycling, woman in journalism, uh, amazing fashion choices. I just, I just love, love, love her so much. <laughs> Yeah, I agree. I'm absolutely buzzing. Um, for those that don't know, Orla is a sports broadcaster who heads up the GCM racing coverage. She's also co-host of the cycling podcast Femina. She writes for various media outlets and she also has a host of hidden talents, which we are about to dig into. So let's welcome to the show, Orla Shenwi. Orla, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you with us. Where are you talking to us from today? Um, thank you for having me, first of all. It's wonderful to be with you both and see your lovely faces. I am talking to you from Amsterdam, uh, where I live. I'm currently in our little garden office because we've got somebody installing um, a new fan in our bathroom to give you a little slice of my domestic life. Um, but yeah, so I'm in our little garden in the centre of Amsterdam. Love that. And how did you find yourself in Amsterdam? And what is it like living in such a bike-friendly city? 
Oh man, I mean, how long have we got? Should we make a whole podcast about how amazing it is to live in a yeah. society? <laughs> um, so I came here because uh, my husband was offered a job in uh, a place called Nieuwegein, which is near Utrecht, which is about an hour or so away from Amsterdam. And uh, we just thought we'd give Amsterdam life a, a try, really, because we moved uh, from London. So we've been used to living in a massive city for a long time and kind of became a little bit disillusioned with London, really. It's a hard city. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's so full of buzz and opportunity. But I needed a change. We both needed a change. So we moved here to give it a go, knowing nothing about Amsterdam, really, other than the cliches. You know, I'd visited once when I was 19 and had a very different experience to uh, <laughs> the version of Amsterdam I now live. And just genuinely fell in love with the city straight away. I've never lived other than where I grew up. I've never lived somewhere where I felt so at home. Edinburgh is probably the, the closest city in terms of vibe and zen. But it's just a wonderful, relaxed, easygoing place. And I genuinely believe that the fact that we all get around by bikes makes such a difference to that. It is fundamental to my daily wellness to be outside on bicycles. And it just changes how everyone interacts with each other. It changes how a community is based and how we perceive each other genuinely. And I think this is one thing that anyone who's not lived in a bike society will never really appreciate. Because whenever I first moved over here, I genuinely, even though I work in cycling, I, I was kind of like, well, this is a bit hippie and a bit lefty and a bit weird and lovely and cookie. And then I realized very quickly there is absolutely nothing hippie about it. It's just incredibly efficient for a start. It's a much, much easier way to get around because you're avoiding traffic constantly. You're always on the move. So it's much, much easier, but also it makes everyone much more open and forward-facing and outward-looking. It really helps to connect with people so I feel much a much deeper sense of connection in my community here than than you can get in a car society and I'll give you a really quick example because I was thinking about this this morning when I left my kids off to school so I take them every morning on the on the bug feet the cargo bike or my my daughter will sometimes ride alongside us and there's the usual stress of getting kids out in the morning you know and anyone who goes to an office will know about any kind of stress you know getting up and getting out on time but then I drop my kids off at school and then I'm doing my little three-point turn with a cargo bike in the road to come back home again. And one of the dads is doing the same thing. And he says, uh, he just shouts across to me and says, oh, Aethanopol's looking good, isn't he? And so I start to like <laughs> engage in this conversation where we're discussing Aethanopol and uh, Pogacar and uh, Roglic and Vingago. And, and so we're riding, we live in, in the same area. I don't know him very well, but his son is in my son's class. So we're riding along together and having this really easy conversation about something that is a common interest for both of us. But it struck me as we were doing that, that, you know, if we were in cars, it would be a bit awkward. We'd be standing at the school gate and trying to have a conversation and wondering when to break it off, you know, and trying to keep eye contact and not really keeping eye contact because I don't know them that well. And actually just riding alongside each other through the city and having this really easy free-flowing conversation about who we fancy for the Grand Tours and then, and then you naturally say goodbye because I'm turning right and he's going straight ahead. And it's just a really natural, easy, familiar way to make conversation with people. So that's just one little example of how it makes us more connected because you wouldn't have that in a society that wasn't based on cars, oh, that wasn't based on bikes, rather. And have you always had this love of cycling? Did you grow up cycling? 
I grew up cycling like everybody does, you know, as in I learned to ride my bike as a kid. I lived in the countryside. So my summer holidays were often spent on my bike going out with my two cousins, Maeve and Maria, and we'd, we'd cycle to each other's houses and then we'd go and play in the rivers and play in the fields and, and ride around the place with our squeaky brakes. But that's as far as it went, you know. And then as I got older, there was, there was one kid in school who was a competitive cyclist and it was weird. I mean, it was lucky for him. He was quite <laughs> cool and he was really funny and very popular. But we were all like, I mean, you know that Jim shaves his legs, yeah? And for us, that was just <laughs> the very definition of strange. Um, and I grew up, you know, after Sean Kelly and Stephen Roach and sort of aware, maybe at the tail end of their careers and aware of them doing these amazing things in France. And in my mind, they were beating the French in France, you know, because that was as aware as I was of anything, which was incredible. And the Irish didn't win very much. So they were huge stars. There's this one guy, Jim, and my cousin, Shan, and he rode a road bike, and they were just oddities, you know? So I didn't get back into cycling until work reintroduced me to it. So I was a late adopter in that way. I got back into it through work and fell in love with it straight away. And it's been the definition, I think, of my life pretty much since then, which is an odd thing, I think, when I look at it in isolation. In terms of your like journalism career as well, you began in print journalism, you began with ITV. What's one important thing that you learned at the beginning of your career? Oh, that's good. I would say the most important thing that my early career taught me was the value of hard work and how nothing replaces that and there is no shortcut to get past hard work no one can ever take it away from you which is a brilliant thing I did start in print and I went through radio I went through local television in England then national television in Scotland and then to Sky and I was a news correspondent at Sky at the age of 26 which at the time felt really young and now I look at the proliferation of examples that we have of of prodigies in whatever world it might be in you know millionaires billionaires by the age of 22 and all of these success stories that we get of people incredibly young and I think it's made us so impatient to get to where we want to get to so quickly or where we think we want to get to is the key point and I guess I was lucky that I didn't really have that at the time because I took my time I was I've always been really impatient you know and, and we all as humans we want to accelerate the process to get to our destination as quickly as possible but I feel very very lucky that I went through that process without feeling that pressure to be um, hugely successful incredibly young um, I think these days a lot of young people are almost hampered by that and what they don't realize is that you can't get to where you want to get to without all of that hard work you know I spent years doing night shifts at Sky you know when you would come in at 9 p.m and you would leave again at 7 a.m and your entire day and your entire, you know, I was married at the time, but I just didn't see my husband because everything was skew whiff. And he'd be going to um, his job at the university and I'd be going to my job at nighttime and we, and we would barely ever meet. But that was that was really, really good training for just that value of hard work. Quite apart from the journalistic skills that it taught me and the value of research and preparation, which is also really important. But it does make me sad, I think, that that we seem to be in such a desperate hurry these days when actually the destination isn't where we're going to get our meaning. Our meaning comes in the journey. I think we have to appreciate that journey a little bit more and, and be OK with learning as we go and not expect to know everything as soon as 
as soon as we turn up to day one in our first job or even, you know, year three in our second job. You know, it's it's about that slow process of learning as we go, really. And just on that, was the decision to go into cycling, was that yours or was it the networks? Was it Sky Sports? Um, it was uh, mine. It was entirely mine. I had been a news correspondent and became quite disillusioned with news. It's a disillusionment, I think, that has only continued in the last couple of years, to be perfectly honest. But the, the politics of working in a newsroom is specifically what I find quite difficult. And the London Olympics were coming up and I wanted a correspondent for that. So I applied for that and I got that job. And then to, it, to me, it just made sense to start with cycling because the British cycling team had been so successful in Beijing. And so I went, I looked at cycling first and I proposed cycling trips and stories before I looked at the other sports and then the rest of the sports didn't get a look in because I started with cycling I was like man this is a lot of fun and I mainly did track cycling to begin with but that was just before Team Sky was starting out and by the time then Team Sky came to being I was the only person really within Sky News and Sky Sports News who'd been actively working in cycling for any amount of time and knew any of the characters involved in it so I almost became well yeah then then I was given all the stories and pursued all the stories on, in road cycling. I mean, my first my first trip actually for road cycling was to go to Tuscany to interview Geraint Thomas and Ben Swift in advance of them being signed for Team Sky. And I met Rod Ellingworth there, uh, who's you know back now at Ineos these days. And Mark Cavendish had just won Milan San Remo, so his picture was on the front of the magazine in the little village in Tuscany. And the sun was shining and we were following, Steve Cummings was there as well. And we were following these riders going through the little, you know, the winding roads of, of Tuscany. And I thought, this, this is what I want to be doing for the next foreseeable future. Thank you. And that was, that was it. I was hooked. And then you go to your first bike race and it's another thing entirely. Uh, and it just pulls you deeper and deeper in. So it was a work transition but then became one that I actively pursued and I wanted to do more and more cycling, which was eventually the reason I ended up leaving Sky so that I could do more um, cycling coverage. What an absolute dream, honestly. I'm thinking about going yeah. I'm thinking about going to Tuscany for my birthday. And let me tell you, that's sold it for me. Um <laughs> oh, it's so beautiful. I love it. I love it. So you're a sports broadcaster, you work for GCM, you're a sport, you're a columnist. I love how you always say balls might drop. I'm terrible at juggling. Absolutely terrible. <laughs> how do you balance all these different work elements? Um, <laughs> I don't think I do, I, but I try. I actively try because I'm a mom of two as well. And that in itself, as anyone with kids will tell you, is, is a full-time job of itself. I think I've, I should start by saying the reason I have that on my, on my Insta bio balls might drop or maybe balls will drop I'm not sure but because we talk about women having it all and and you know it's funny we don't do that with men do we men just have it you know and they're allowed as much of all as they want um but with women having it all I, I hesitate to ever make to ever say I'm doing it better than anyone else and this is how you should do it or that it's easy you know is the other thing because over the years, I've had former colleagues get in touch when they've had kids and say things like, oh, I'm really encouraged to see that you can do it because it shows me that you can. And sometimes I think, well, I don't know if I can do it, though. I'm not sure if I am doing it. And I think you, you can only ever work out your own rhythm. Really, you can only work out your own rhythm and, and your own priorities. And I do things that I love, which is 
probably the key to it. Um, my, my life is very, very busy, but I'm really lucky that I've filtered out all the stuff that I don't like to do, really. So when it's something you love, you'll always make time for it. But a lot of it is, is that time management. And, you know, I'll set my alarm for 4.30 in the morning to do, to have time to properly write a column before the kids get up for school. And then I'll take them to school and then I'll have some silence in the day where I can do my other things. And I've started my own project now, 10 Times Braver, which takes up so much of my time just even trying to do that properly and doing the research that I think that it deserves. And then, the, and then the kids come home and then in the evening, I'll work on other things whenever they're in bed. And it's just, I don't, I don't know if there is a secret to any of it other than, again, it's that hard work, really. I work hard, you know, that, that, I guess that's the secret. I work bloody hard. And sometimes on the outside, people might think that that is easy because it looks fun and it is an awful lot of fun. And my writing is a lot of fun and my TV work is an, is an awful lot of fun. But there is no secret, really. I guess it's just hard work and being OK with that and showing up for that. And if the work becomes too hard for me, then I scale back on something. You know, I try to make my own boundaries, which is really important for me and is something that I've learned in the last couple of years. Um, but the other thing to factor in is I don't really like I have a lovely life and I've got amazing friends and we're very sociable with each other. But my party days are behind me, you know. I don't go out drinking. I don't drink at all, which frees up a bucket load of time. And I don't go out in the time. So that that's the one thing that went when my kids came along because I don't have time for everything. So I, I shift out the things that don't matter so much to me so that I can keep everything that does matter, you know. Yeah, like prioritising what you really want to focus on. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't happen by accident. It doesn't happen by accident. You've got to prioritise it and do it consciously, really. And you mentioned that you moved out of Sky because you wanted to focus on cycling. So then you went to Eurosport, GCN. And it looks like you've got this lovely little family um, <laughs> with everyone. Is that what it feels like? Do you want to know the secret? I hate them. I knew it. I cannot I knew it. <laughs> <laughs> we were hoping you'd say that. Oh, my <laughs> life. Um, no, I'm so, I'm genuinely so lucky. I'm so lucky like it's hard to it's hard to explain it and it, and I, you know I never want to sign smug I've got so much respect for the guys first and foremost um and and what I think works for me is they respect me and that's not a given as a woman who has never ridden a bike competitively you know but they respect what my job is uh, which is entirely different to theirs but I think the most important thing first and foremost is we all love watching bike racing you know, we will genuinely just love to chat about it. And none of us, I think, takes life too seriously, but we take what we do really seriously, you know, and we all care about the show. And that's really, really important, but also really, really hard because often with television in particular, ego will get in the way and people will want to present themselves in a way that matters more to them than the show, you know, but all of us get it. We're all trying to do the same thing, which is make the show as good as it can possibly be. And so no one is trying to wrong fit anyone, but no one's afraid of anyone. And I think because we all have that level of respect, we're OK with challenging each other because it's never biting at something else. You know, we're OK to contradict each other and to have a laugh. And what really, really, really helps as well is that people are so vocal about their support for what we do. And so we feel like, well, maybe we're getting something right. And obviously we'll get lots of people telling us what we do wrong. 
But frankly, you can just turn off. You know, I'm not forcing myself. I'm not knocking on your door and, you know, making myself comfy in your living room. You can turn the TV over. But yeah, we we just genuinely have a lot of fun. Like I had, um, I take some time off in the winter so that I can uh, recalibrate and be with the kids and my husband and stuff. Coming back into the first studio this year was just genuinely like coming home. I was so within... Within 10 minutes of sitting in the studio, I was crying with laughter. I mean, barely able to breathe. And it just felt so good. And when we came off air, I said to Dan, you know what was so beautiful about that show? There was a moment where I forgot we were on television. It felt like we were in the green room just talking about bike racing like we would do anyway. And that's a, it's a real privilege. But I think that's why it works, because we're genuine about it, you know, and we're genuine about our love for each other and our connection to each other. But we give each other space, you know, like in the off season, we'll WhatsApp each other. But it's not like we're constantly you know, in each other's lives. I think that's healthy as well. But when we're at the Grand Tours, we're going out to dinner every night and we're spending all day every day with each other, which is really hard if you don't get on. So, yeah, we're really lucky and we're into year two now of, of this core group. And it's it's a brilliant place to be. What would you say as well, I guess, and you can have two because they're two different aspects. I'll be generous. Um, What would you say has been the best day that you've had in the studio, but also one of the best like races that you've watched and then had to analyse afterwards? Oh, wow, that's hard. Best day in the studio? I don't know. Like, every day is brilliant. It sounds like it. (laughs) Yeah, but truly, and, and... Every day I'm, I and we are trying to make it better than the day before. You know, I don't become complacent about anything that we do. And so I try after every show to watch back the entire show and to analyse what went right and what went wrong. And then we bring it to each other and, and try to make that better. And, I, and I'm always trying to make what I do better, always, always. And I'm always learning and always picking fault, which isn't a bad thing, I don't think. Perfectionism, I think, is demonised an awful lot. But if it makes you better, then, you know, take the good bits. And so on on that tone, I would say my last show is always the best one, <laughs> you know. So, so my best one that I can think of right now is our, is our most recent show, which, you know, was at the weekend. And, and it was because I felt like we we're straight into our flow and, and it's just a fun thing to do. So I don't know if there's a if there's a best show, really. In terms of best races, I've talked an awful lot about the um, the last day of the Tour de France Femme last year I mean the first day of the Tour de France family as well standing on the Champs-Élysées in the middle of that glorious beautiful historic city and all the hype that surrounded it it felt it felt really significant it felt really big but on the last day we were back in the studio again and it was just us and sometimes it's in your quieter moments that you can well most often it's in your quieter moments that you can put things into context and see things from the outside really which is what I was doing literally because we weren't at the race and seeing the fans that had turned up to watch this bike race that stood of itself and by itself and wasn't an add-on in any way to the men's racing was the most emotional I've been watching a bike race. And, you know, I had to bring tissues on set because I was crying. And I don't I don't usually get that emotional about, about bike races to that extent. But the significance of it and thinking of it was in the it was on the day of the Euros finals as well, where England were playing. Um and I'd just been sent a picture of my daughter and her friend sitting at home watching sport. And and I just, the contrast in the media and sporting landscape from when I grew up was so overwhelming that I just felt so emotional and so, so proud to be a part of it in a tiny little way. 
and so happy to be alive at this time where, you know, everything's changing for our girls. So I would say the last day of the Tour de France fam for the racing, yes, but more for the significance of it uh, is one that will stand out for, for a very long time, hopefully forever. I hope I'll never forget what that felt like, actually. Oh, I love that. It makes me feel a bit emotional. Like, it's Aww. awesome. <laughs> yeah, it is, though. It really is. And I mean, I guess you are the only female in that group. And unlike the men, your dress sense gets a lot of attention. How do you feel about this? <laughs> Um, I, I, when you, I, just correct you slightly, unlike the men, Adam gets a lot of flack for what he wears. That is true. <laughs> Adam Blythe's shirts. <laughs> oh, I love his style. It's a really interesting one because it's something that I'm really grateful for, to be perfectly honest. Because I tell you what, we get meaning in life, I believe, from living by values and recognising what our values are and and. The tragedy of the pace of life these days is it's so difficult sometimes to connect with what our values are. So it's so difficult sometimes to think, what am I living by? What am I standing for? What what is my ethos? You know? And I feel very lucky in a way that I do get attacked, frankly, not always, often supported, um, sometimes just commented on. But the reason I say that is because it makes me question how I live and how I represent, especially on television, especially with what I wear. And I'm lucky as well that I get the platform to be able to vocalise that. And, and my columns are an amazing space for me to be able to refine my thoughts and why anything matters to me. And so I've, I've had the privilege of being able to use my platform to explain why I dress the way I dress. Now, would I dress the same way if I wasn't being challenged? I don't know if I would, because I wouldn't then be thinking about why I'm dressing the way I'm dressing. And I might just think, well... I'll just put this on and that's that. But because my integrity is questioned, essentially, whenever people question how I dress, then it makes me question whether that's part of my values. And if it's part of my values, why? What is that representing? And what am I trying to share with other people? And there are, you know, there are so many layers to it, which not everybody needs to know. Quite frankly, you might like or hate what I wear. It doesn't matter. I'm not that, I'm not, it's not a fashion show. I'm there, I'm there to talk about cycling and to, to try to bring more people into cycling and make that part of their daily escape and entertainment. The reasons that I do dress the way I dress are, are multi-layered, though one of them being that I suffered postnatal depression and anxiety. And in that period, I felt like I completely lost everything, my mind, my body, everything. And certainly whenever I started dressing this way, it was a, it was a call to other women in particular to say, you will find yourself again in motherhood. It's fine. You don't have to. Be, you lose your sense of style an awful lot when you're pregnant or certainly in the immediate aftermath and, and your priorities are elsewhere. And I wanted to say, you know what, you'll get a personality back again. You're still you somewhere and you might even be a brighter, bigger, bolder version of you. So that was a big part of it to begin with. But there's also increasingly this really heightened awareness of how we age our women and how we need women. And I say we really in society, we really desperately have this need to uh, put women in boxes. And if you are in your 20s, then you're expected to be sexualized and you, and you almost feel you have to be sexualized because that is the male gaze. And so you dress according to that. Once you start to have children, then, then you're supposed to become more maternal because otherwise it confuses people and it confuses that male gaze. And once you, you know, once you're seen to have fulfilled a certain stage in your life, you're supposed to visually change that as you move on. 
I just don't feel that that is in any way imposed on our men. And I don't want to like genderize everything, but men are allowed to express themselves. And most of them don't through clothing, to be perfectly honest, and that's their choice. But men are allowed to be all things at all times and women aren't so much. And so I, I want to dress the way I want to dress because I want other people to do the same. And, and, and I get so many messages from people saying, you know, in their 50s or in their 60s saying, thank you so much. I'm wearing a short skirt because you've made me feel brave enough to wear it. And I feel amazing getting my legs out. Or um, I had this one woman last year, it broke my heart. She said I wore socks with heels and my husband laughed at me and called me ridiculous. And I was like, I don't, I don't want to contribute to your marital strife here, but can you tell your husband where to go? If, you want, if that makes you feel good, darling. Yeah bloody wear it and and then she then thanked me and said actually yeah you're you're right and I'm going to own this and it's just about I think giving women the confidence to be who they want to be and what they want to be and represent the way they want to and and to give less of a hoot what anyone else is going to think about that and how they're going to judge them and and quite frankly if it makes other people feel uncomfortable that's not my problem it's my problem if I feel uncomfortable but if, it's, if someone else feels uncomfortable and they're self-aware enough, they'll question why they feel that discomfort and it might bring them to a point of enlightenment and awareness. And if it doesn't, then that's still not my problem. And, I can't, you know, none of us can change all of society. But but yeah, going back to how I deal with it, I'm really fortunate because being attacked in that way means I have to question it, means I have to think to myself, is this worth defending? Is this a hill I'm willing to die on? And then I live more closely to my values. So. For me, I know exactly why I dress the way I dress. And that helps me to know what I'm standing for, which is a privilege, really. So there's this wonderful thing about cyclists. We can never admit when we don't know something. And it's just like me and ketones. So someone would mention ketones and I'd be all like, yeah, I know what that means. It's basically just an energy supplement. And it is. But as I've dived into a bunch of research from ketones experts, HVMN, it turns out there's a lot more to it. So it sort of works like this. Usually we burn carbs when we cycle, then fat is a backup. Carbs is easy, chuck it straight in the furnace. But for fat to become fuel, we need to turn it into glycerol and fatty acids first. I've got low levels of ketones in my bloodstream as I speak. But what HVMN scientists have done is to work out how to literally make ketones and to put them into a sports drink. They call it HVMN Ketone IQ, and you can drink it during a ride or before a ride. And the idea is that instead of burning carbs, then fat, then ketones when you're cycling, with Ketone IQ, your body gets a big helping of energy-rich ketones to use alongside the carbs and fat all at once. So it's kind of three sources of energy, not two. So it's the reason why I've heard about World Tour teams like Jumbo Visma using ketones. They can help you effectively ride faster for for longer. So if you fancy giving them a try um, and free energy for faster riding, you know, why not? Uh, then visit hvmn.com and use the promo code cyclist at the checkout to get 20% off. So that's hvmn.com and the promo code cyclist for a 20% discount. And also, if you want to learn more about how ketones work, then hvmn's got a brilliant podcast, which is also really worth a listen. It's called Health Via Modern Nutrition with Dr. Lat Mansour, and you can find it in all the usual places. Finding the right insurance deal for your bikes normally involves spending hours of your time getting individual quotes from multiple providers. However, this week's podcast partner, quotezone.co.uk, makes the insurance quote process quick and easy. 
and provides quotes from a wide range of providers, including Yellow Jersey, Lacquer, Cycleplan, and Bicmo, along with many more. In fact, QuoteZone compares more providers than any other UK bicycle insurance comparison site, meaning you're more likely to find a deal that meets your needs and budget perfectly. We've partnered with QuoteZone on a prize draw to win a one-year subscription to Cyclist Magazine worth over £75. All you need to do is try out QuoteZone and you'll be automatically entered into the prize draw when you get a quote. Simply go to quotezone.co.uk forward slash cyclist and try out the comparison tool to be entered into the prize draw. Please note this competition is open to our UK listeners only and the winner will be selected at random and notified before the end of May 2023. I interviewed Lisa Leslie um, the other month and she was essentially, so she was the first woman to ever dunk in a WNBA game. She's a real trailblazer. But she was also saying, you know, if you look good, you feel good, if you're wearing the nice clothes. And then she went on to say, you know, you play well and, you know, we don't play basketball. (laughs) But are there any elements, I guess, with fashion that you go to? You know, I know you like experimenting with color, but is there anything that, you're drawn to like for me it would maybe be like leather jackets or anything like that and you're like yeah that's me um (laughs) yeah like I just like to push it (laughs) I like to push it I've always so I've always enjoyed wearing shorts for example I find it much more comfortable shorts or short skirts I just I just like having my legs out because I, I find it more yeah more comfortable but it's funny what you say about when you look good you play good but it's my it's my uniform I, you know you can see me now right and I'm in a like just a very normal white t-shirt and a pair of jeans um, with my slippers on my feet but, you know so this this is me being functional but when I when I go into the studio and I've got my clothes on and my hair has been done and my face has been done I think that's my uniform that's my armor now I'm ready bring it on and I become a much bigger version of me which is what you need for television so I completely buy into that. I, like, I, I would really struggle to go on air looking like this, not because I don't like how I look, or not because, as in, um, most of us mostly don't like how we look, right? So it's not like I suddenly think I'm amazing looking when I do the other, but it's just an armour, it's just an alter ego, really. But it's more like I couldn't go on air looking like this because it's not the bigger version of me. So anything that's a little bit bigger, I like, but I love colour, it's a that's a massive thing for me. I just absolutely love playing with bold colours and I love playing with anything that's a bit new, you know, and a little bit different and taking twists on things. And there are times, there are times when I think, oh, certainly once or twice last year, I was about to go on air and I looked at Belle, the um, our beautiful hair and makeup artist, and I was like, I've gone too far. I've gone too far, haven't I? Oh, <laughs> oh God, it's too late, it's too late. And then I'll get people going, oh, my God, I love to do your outfit today. And I'm like, okay, well, this <laughs> is right. a new standard then. <laughs> but I think I've probably got, I've probably, I think I've probably pushed it as far as, far as um, I would on air. But um, just, yeah, just anything, anything that's colour. And like I say, I like, my, I like my short skirts and my shorts. But again, partly because an old boss told me I shouldn't get my legs out. And so ever since then, I've been like, all right, then I'll get my legs out. <laughs> Love that. Here for it. <laughs> and um, obviously, let's move on to sort of race coverage and everything. Um, 
Who are your favourite racers at the moment and why? My favourite racers? Across the men's and women's. Yes, men's and women's. Yeah. Um, so the thing is, with so many of these things, and we're lucky enough to work in a sport, our analysis of riders becomes so coloured by what we know about them, doesn't it? Which is, which is, I guess, the beauty of sport anyway. It's the human side of it. And so I would say my favourite rider at the minute is Sharon Van Anroy, partly because I got to meet her recently and she was so lovely. <laughs> so um, I got to take my kids to, and my husband, to the World Cyclocross Championships in Hoogerheide uh, because, you know, it's in the Netherlands, not that far away, and I thought it would be ridiculous not to. And I don't often get to bring my kids along to things, you know, and I wanted them to get a flavour of why I love my job so much. So we went along and uh, we were there on the Sunday and we, we were only there for the women's under 23 and the men's race. And we were able to get bibs to get into the media area for the men's race, but we weren't able to get that sorted in time for the women's under 23. So I was explaining to the kids along the way who they should be watching out for and I was specifically mentioning Sharon and Zoe Batstead. Um, and so my kids, for whatever reason, well, my son was really, really into Zoe Backstead and still is, like cheering for her the whole way through. They could barely see any of the race. You know, they were jumping up and down trying to see this massive screen. We were holding them on our shoulders. They were screaming every time they went past, but didn't really get to watch very much of the race. But Sharon being Dutch was a massive thing as well, especially for my daughter. So she was kind of, she, she was cheering for both. But uh, anyway, we got our bibs sorted and we got through to the media pen just as the interviews were rounding up. And I went to speak to someone at the UCI and said, oh, would you like, would you like Sharon to come over and say hello? And I was like, oh my God, oh my God, I'd love that for my children. That would be absolutely amazing. <laughs> so Sharon really kindly came over to say hello to my kids let them hold her medal, get pictures taken. And it was the most game-changing moment, you know, because, because my daughter is still obsessed with Sharon Van Onroy. She went into school the very next day and gave a massive presentation. She said, Mommy, send, send those pictures to my teacher. I want to stand up in class and tell them what we got up to at the weekend. And, and so that, that moment overshadowed for my kids the Walt Mature showdown that came afterwards that we got to see much better we had a much better like racing experience watching that but Sharon's loveliness just completely dominated and also now she's gone on to win her first uh, women's world tour uh, race and is just she just brings such joy I think to everything that she does so Sharon Van Anroy is my current favorite rider I'd have to say I am always on the men's side, always. I just love watching Walt and Mature. I just love them. I don't know if I'll ever get bored of it, ever. I'd say Walt Van Aert is still my favourite rider, really, just because of everything that he can do and the way that he does it. But that rivalry is, is for me, still everything. And I think it's insane as well to think that they're still going to push each other to, to new heights and we get to enjoy that. And that's such yeah. a delight. Like, it's insane. I absolutely love it. And I find it so funny at uh, Milan San Remo, you know, that little like love seat moment where oh my God. They, they couldn't speak to each other and they were squished in together. And and I just, I don't know, there's, there's something there's something inside me that's so deeply satisfied by the fact that they can't be free. <laughs> I think that's how it should be. And, and you know, maybe years down the line when they're, when they're retired and they're, invited to speak at all these different um, cycling social gatherings and the whiskey's flowing, they'll be able to share tales and, and give different versions of the same days in completely different ways and, and appreciate 
you know, find commonality and all of that. But for now, I don't want them to be friends. I want them to hate each other and keep pushing <laughs> each other and push each other to dark places that bring the kinds of performances that, you know, have us screaming and standing on our feet and, and also tearing our hair out when they sabotage it for each other. I think it's just, it's a beautiful, beautiful rivalry. And I, I yeah, like you say, Robin, I'm so, I feel so privileged to be able to watch that and to be in an era of wild and mature. It's brilliant. And another rivalry as well that, I think kind of relates to that in the sense that they weren't best friends and they don't they don't have to be, you know, they're they're competitors. Uh, but Anna Mears and Victoria Pendleton were a great example for mm. me growing up of such an intense rivalry, uh, clashes on the bike. And then after they retired, mm. they went to each other's weddings and it was just yeah. it was so wonderful. I loved it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. But they obviously recognize so much in each other, you know, and as you say with with Anna and, and Victoria, there are only each other that will ever know what that feels like, mm. you know? And and they must see so much of each other in each other, but probably also the bits that they hate, you know? Because if, if you're a competitive kind of person, I, I've never met, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's just me, actually. I, I don't know if I've ever discussed this with anyone else who's competitive, but the competitive side of me is also the bit that I really hate, you know, I, I I really resent it sometimes. I'm just like, chill out, chill. But so when I meet other competitive people, you want to beat them at everything. And their competitiveness annoys you because you're like, well, just chill out and let me beat you. Then it's going to be. <laughs> and I just I just think there must be so much of each other that you recognize the darkness and the good bits, you know. So, yeah, maybe one day, maybe one day. They'll sit down in a podcast and talk about all the ways in which they secretly now love each other, not so secretly. But for the time that they're racing, may that rivalry continue. Absolutely. Yeah, 100%. And what about the events, the races in the calendar that you look forward to the most? All of them. Yeah. <laughs> I'm such a hussy. It's terrible. I always think, I always think coming up to each race, oh, this is it. This is it. It's my favourite. It's not going to get any better. This is it this year. And then by the next one, it's like, what race was that again? <laughs> so, like, we just had Milan San Remo as we're recording. And it is just, it's just the most beautiful race, isn't it? It's just beautiful. And those moments in the Chipress and the Poggio are, are some of the best moments in cycling. And then we'll get to Flanders. And I'm sorry, nothing beats Flanders. Nothing, until we get to Paris-Roubaix. And then Paris-Roubaix is absolutely the most beautiful, brutal, chaotic dramatic bike race of the season but then we're the Giro d'Italia and what was Paris-Roubaix anyway because we've got the start of the stage racing you know and it's in Italy and it's the romance and it's the unpredictability but then we're at the Giro de France and I'm sorry the Giro de France is the Giro de France you know and I just feel like every single race I get to it's like goosebumps on goosebumps on goosebumps you know um I, like I would say Flanders has got to be one of my favourites. Paris-Roubaix has got to be one of my favourites. I love the world championships because of the one day element that you know after we've had all the stage racing we've got all the best best riders in the world um and anything and everything can go wrong and usually does apart from whoever wins it so all of it um but but probably by the time we get to Tour de France it's this real deep visceral in the pit of my stomach awareness that racing doesn't get more beautiful you know there isn't there is no other stage that means so much in which so much can happen, so much can fall apart. But what I love about the Tour de France is that every day you can make amends 
And every day is another possibility to speculate on how it can go right and how it could go wrong. And it's never really, really over until it's actually over. And that in itself is a beautiful metaphor for life as well. I would say, I would say probably a very long-winded way of realizing to myself, maybe it is the Tour de France. Yeah. Yeah. There's a reason. <laughs> there's a reason it's the most famous bike race in the world. It's it's utter beauty. Utter, utter beauty and devastation on two wheels. I love it. And we talked about the emotion of the Tour de France fam that you had last year. How do you feel about the current state of the women's side of the sport? I find it really exciting, you know, I find it really exciting. And there's a lot of talk about how sustainable the growth is. I don't want to revisit any comments that I think are quite detrimental mm-hmm. to the conversation, to be perfectly honest. Um, I think we give our time to what matters. But, you know, my my history through women's cycling, short as it is, has seen such a massive, such a massive amount of change. Because I came into it really properly in 2016, uh, when we started the cycling podcast, Femina, you know, I've been covering it um, before then, but that's when I started to properly focus on it. And I think we really can do with stepping back every now and again and looking at the very recent context and how far we've come, because the racing we have, right now, and I was saying this actually, I was recording the cycling podcast, Femina, the other day and realizing just how much I'm really, really, really loving women's racing at the minute. I'm genuinely just loving all of the rivalries and the level of racing that we're seeing and the depth that we're seeing. You know, I think it's it's such an exciting time. And unlike men's racing, where we've got all that talent spread all over the place, mostly until the Tour de France. But, you know, this year we won't see all of the best riders at the Tour de France. We won't see Remco. We won't see Primoz. And I'd love to see them there. And a lot of the women's races, we see the very best riders. The women's World Tour races, we see the very best riders at almost every race. You know, and that's absolutely thrilling to be able to see. And and seeing the different roles that they all take, you know, whether it's a sprint kind of race, whether it's a punchers kind of race, whether we've got the stage races. So I, I find women's cycling more exciting and more interesting in an objective sense even, than ever before, than, than certainly in my lifetime and certainly in my career. I think it's a really, really brilliant time to be following women's racing. And as well, because we still have the fortune in women's racing and men's racing, where we're seeing riders at the twilight of their careers still winning, still winning the biggest races. But what we used to have was we didn't have then the younger riders able to come through and compete because most riders would have to go off and have a job or do their education and have a plan B before they were then coming back into bike racing. So we would see this talent um, coming to fruition an awful lot later. Now we're seeing riders coming through development squads and professional teams from a much younger age. So, you know, we've got the likes of Pfeiffer Georgie winning already at the age of 22, Sharon Van Anroy winning already. And I think that is what makes it really exciting because we've got Ashley Mum and Passio still able to win any bike race in the world. Obviously, Mariana, obviously, Annemiek. But you do have this younger talent coming through. Um, Lorena Vibus is still only just beyond her teen years, which I keep forgetting. So it's that it's that depth across the entire peloton that I think is really, really exciting. And let's not forget with the Mochet. You know, we can watch a bike race. <laughs> what a concept. It's, it's mad. It's mad to think how recent that is. And I, and I fully embrace any narrative that says we should be seeing more of it. But can you imagine starting out in 2016 trying to write news roundups based on 
written reports of races where the people weren't really even there. You know, uh, we're talking like early 1900s level of coverage for men's racing compared to women's, you know. Um, but we can watch the bike races these days, which is incredible. And, and we can see just like how exciting the racing is, you know. I love it. And you were talking about roles and, and team depth. If you had your pick of being a professional cyclist in any of the teams in the peloton, what role would you see yourself playing and who would you want to be riding alongside? I wouldn't be a professional cyclist. I think it's mad. <laughs> I, honestly, I would never, I would never be a professional cyclist. It's a bonkers life and a bonkers sport, genuinely. Like, it's so dangerous. You spend hours and hours every day in the bike. All of those bloody races where you're just, you're just emptying your soul and your legs on the road to finish in, like, 76th, you know, as a career best. It's so hard. And for a lot of them, not for life-changing, not for life-setting up amounts of money, certainly. You know, there's good money in it, but it's not like basketball or football or, you know, I just wouldn't do it. I just wouldn't do it. Would you stick to triple jumping? Because we did hear, (laughs) we did hear that you were the triple jump champion, Ola. (laughs) No, I wasn't good enough to make it beyond the juniors, was I? Um, I was, I was... (laughs) Uh, junior Irish triple jump champion twice, yes. And I, I always wanted to be an Olympic athlete, really. I really, really, my dream was to be on the Irish team at an Olympic Games. But at that time, there weren't any coaches in triple jump, certainly in Northern Ireland. And so the national squad were were training me, but in hurdles. And hurdles were what I was okay at, but I was never Irish champion. So I was training in a discipline that wasn't mine. So I, well, I got injured anyway. I had like repeated shin splints, but it was just a bit pointless. You know, why why would I train in hurdles when I'm really good at the triple jump? So, you know, everything was different, you know. (laughs) Um, But no, neither. I'm much more comfortable on this side, I have Mm. to say, because it's like if if you, I, I always struggled with a competitive nature really, of competitive sport. I think it's a really hard place to be in psychologically and emotionally. And the reason, actually, I hated the hurdles, even though I was quite good at it. I hated crouching on that start line and looking up and seeing those obstacles in front of me and thinking, I've got to get over those before I get to the line. And somebody's going to say, go, and I have to go. Whereas with the triple jump, I could do it in my own time. Mm. You know, I could go at my own pace. And I was effectively, in my head, competing against myself, which is much more comfortable for me. But I, I I'm get an awful lot more fun out of watching people compete than actually competing because I hate losing. I hate losing. <laughs> Honestly, I'm the same. It could be like Mario Kart or table tennis. Oh, I'm so totally. competitive. Do you know, we did this thing in the studio last year, right? Because obviously we're all super competitive. But it was, there are long days at the Tour de France and um, there are, you know, transition stages with not very much to do other than get an Uber Eats in and, and sit and talk rubbish in front of TV. So we did this standing long jump competition in the studio and we would, we, we had um, we had brightly coloured um, gaffer tape and we would measure who had gone where. And, and I, was in the, I was in the studio recently and there's a, there's a bit of tape that's still there no um, with the winning jump, but I couldn't, I couldn't accept it. Even though I, was, I, I, I jumped further than a lot of the guys, which was good, but not good enough for me. I had to beat all the boys, 
But I, you know, I forget Adam Blythe. I forget he's really bloody athletic. You know, he used to be national champion and riding the professional peloton. And because he wears his lovely fluffy jumpers, I forget that he's actually really strong. And he kept beating me in a stand-alone jump. And I was like, no, uh, Adam, stop. Just stop now. And I kept trying to go back and get closer and closer, and I couldn't do it. So, you know, it really, it really, it really affected me that I couldn't win the standing long jump competition once the GCN years work grew. <laughs> Next time you've got to get him when he's wearing skinny jeans and you'll be like, oh, surprise, we're actually uh, redoing it today. Yeah, yeah. but he would, he would still do it. He'd still manage it, oh you know, and I changed into, I was wearing a little skirt and I put some shorts on, on underneath the skirt and I changed into my trainers and I, you know, I fully, <laughs> I fully embraced this. Um, but couldn't win it, so I wasn't happy. <laughs> Do you have any more hidden talents in in your life? What's what's something no one knows about you? I love asking people that. Oh, that's a good question. I wonder. I don't know if people know that I used to be an orchestral violinist. Oh my goodness! Is that, is that a thing? Ooh. Yeah, I played in an orchestra for years. I was first violin, and I was I was leader of my school orchestra. So I played the violin from I don't know what age maybe I started certainly in primary school until I was about 18 um so yeah I'm a viol I'm a classically trained violinist that's amazing yeah. I used to <laughs> I used to play violin at primary school but I'm absolutely not I'm absolutely not classically trained <laughs> well the annoying thing is though like I I haven't played it in years and I, I want to get back into it again and when we moved over to Amsterdam uh, I've got I've got a few violins actually. I've got my OG, which is from when I was little. I've got two electric violins as well. Or is it one electric? I need to check that out now. I think it's maybe only one electric violin. But my my original beautiful violin has been a little bit smashed mm. up. So I need to take it to a repair shop in Amsterdam, and I want to I want to take it up again because my daughter started learning the piano. We bought a piano a few years ago because I love I absolutely love music and I really want music to be part of our home. So I've been learning the piano with her. So I teach myself little bits in the piano. But but I caught myself the other day thinking, why am I doing eight year old piano bits <laughs> when I'm a classically trained violinist? Why don't I just do that again? I'd be much easier to make music that way. Um, so so that that's been my project to take up the violin again. But all my other life projects get in the way, and it's about priorities, isn't it? I, I'm doing sort of psychology MOOCs at the minute, mass open online courses. I don't know if you've heard of those, but they're an amazing way to learn. And so I'm prioritizing my psychology studies over other things. So um, there's just a lot to try to fit into life, you know. That is a lot. Wow. <laughs> so eight-year-old piano pieces are a lot simpler, you know, than, <laughs> than picking up the violin again and getting up to that standard again. But, is that a yeah, bit of chopsticks yeah. on the piano? That's, that's all I uh, Well, know. I taught myself... Do you know um, Contine de notre été, which is from uh, Jan Tiersen? So I really wanted to learn that. So that's still the only piece I've learned to any significant degree on the piano. So I play it all <laughs> the time. Um, but yeah, I need to teach myself some extra bits. I've been trying to teach myself, but I just lose patience, really. Um, you know, James Bay, Let It Go. Oh, yeah. Banger. So I just love that song. I love singing it. It's right in my register. So I was an alto singer at school. I was in the school choir. We, oh, my goodness. Actually, that's another thing. We, we were the All-Ireland Choir Champions oh. um, at my school at St Mary's. Um, and I, I'm an alto. And so James Bay, Let It Go is the perfect register for me. So I want to be able to learn it on the piano. So I can, but then I get too into singing it and then I leave the piano and I walk away singing the song. Yeah. <laughs> Achievements yeah. just coming out your ears. Bloody <laughs> hell. They're not, 
going to tempt Rob, and that's different. <laughs> I haven't achieved. I'm always learning. I like the learning process, but yeah, jack of all trades, master of very, very few. Oh, I disagree. I think you're full of hidden talents. <laughs> Mola, thank you. Well, thank you, Emma. Mola, thank you so much for being on our podcast today. It's been lovely chatting to you. It's been so lovely to get to chat to you both. Thank you for having me. It's been an utter joy. You've been an absolute delight, Ola. Thank you so much. <laughs> oh, not at all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And keep up the amazing work because you're both wonderful. Oh, thank oh, you. Keep at it. <laughs> Oh, wow. Well, massive thanks to Ola for coming on the podcast. What an amazing woman. Honestly, that was such an inspirational chat. I just, I loved it so, so much. I wish we had like three hours of time, but she's a very busy woman. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Incredible how she balances everything. I mean, yeah. And all her hidden talents. I mean, I can't wait. I want to hear the violin. (laughs) Crazy, isn't it? Yeah. I thought she was going to just like bust out a violin and start every famous violinist just left my head. But, you know. I thought she was going to start doing that. But I just, oh, I love speaking to her so much. Like how she got into cycling, that was crazy, wasn't it? Yeah, and actually it was it was really nice because it was really relatable because I don't come from a typical cycling background either. And just her talking about it, I thought was great. And also how she mentioned there was that kid that she went to school with and he was the cyclist and everyone thought he was a bit weird. <laughs> everyone thought it was weird because he shaved his legs. That's so yeah, funny. and now you're like, and now she's like fully fledged working in cycling. <laughs> like what a difference time makes. <laughs> I wonder if that guy knows that he was secretly the inspiration. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if they had a chat since. <laughs> it was also really nice hearing about her fashion and the reasons she chooses to mm. her style and where it's inspired by. Yeah, I saw the chat about postnatal depression as well. It's it's interesting because it's something that you think about, but you and me, we don't have children, so we, we don't necessarily like share the same experiences. But just that open honesty about mental health and how it can affect you across different aspects, I think it's really... It's really, I don't like saying, she might not like me saying brave. I might get a message afterwards, <laughs> but it is to a sense. And I think a lot of people will appreciate the honesty. And she also runs 10 times braver, uh, the Instagram account. So it's essentially support hacks, uh, tips to overcome the fears holding you back. She's very active on it. She posts like infographics, videos of herself, it's really inspirational. Uh, I've used that word a lot and I think it can probably be like the defining word of the podcast. But I just think having a voice like that is amazing. Yeah, I agree. And I think she's not afraid to talk about stuff and to really like, she's what she said about her fashion, like she wants to push it. Mm. And I just think I love it, like all for bright colours because it's so easy to just wear black and, you know, and not even think about it. Literally, we're sitting here right now, both wearing black. <laughs> yeah, both wearing black hoodies, like absolutely classic. <laughs> um, but also, I loved how excited she is about women cycling um, and how interesting she finds it and how, you know, there is so much going on. And yeah, it's, re- it's, it's so exciting. Her joy is so contagious, isn't it? Like, yeah. I'm really excited to see how this, this racing season unfolds, not only for like, you know, the Matthew van der Poels and the Wout van Aerts, that's a given, but also people like Sheeran winning, getting their first World Tour win, Georgie 501. It's just, it's such an amazing time to be in. It's Annemiek van Vluten's final season. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, hope it isn't. <laughs> if you're listening, 
<laughs> so come on the podcast. We'd love to have you. Yeah, honestly, <laughs> announce your unretirement, please. <laughs> but I'm, I'm just, I'm so excited to see how this season unfolds. Yeah, me too. And Robin, I've got to ask, do you have any hidden talents? Oh, hidden talents. Well, talents is, uh, is probably stretching it a bit. Um, hidden talents. Let me have a think. A little think, Rooney. Any cool ones? Oh, I don't think I'm a very cool person. That's my issue. <laughs> no, Robin, come on. You are. You're great. Hidden talents. Um, God, this must be like how cyclists feel when I spring that question on them and they're like, they, they stop panicking. I've had some really cool answers though. Like I think it was Larry Warbass that once said he makes balloon animals. And then Oliver Nelson was like, oh, I love gardening. I'm a That's plant cool. dad. I was like, I love that. Hidden talents. For listeners, oh. I know Robin has a great hidden talent and it is painting. Oh, stop it, you. <laughs> <laughs> she always be very quiet about it, but it's very good. <laughs> I do love painting. It's so relaxing. Like, I never found a way to completely switch off. Like, some people, it's meditation. My brain is so loud that that just doesn't really work for me. But yeah, I sit down and paint and I'm like, wow, it is silent up there. Just nothing but, you know, that meme of like the monkey with the symbols and it's like, oh, yeah like Homer Simpson's brain. Yeah, that's what it does to me. I have Homer Simpson's brain. What a way to end the podcast. Yeah, what an image. Well, on that note, <laughs> look out for the next Cyclist Magazine podcast, which will be out in a fortnight. And in the meantime, head over to the website for all the tech and pro cycling updates and check out their magazine as well. All the links are in the description and we'll see you next time. Today's episode is brought to you by GCN Plus, the place to watch all the best live bike racing and loads of brilliant cycling films too. This fortnight, catch Liège, Baston Liège live, highlights of Flesh Wallonne, plus the build to the Giro d'Italia. And if you get an annual pass to GCN Plus now, you'll get a whole season's worth of action for less than half the price of 12 monthly subscriptions. And you'll be able to watch all your favourite races, including grand tours, monuments, classics, major stage races and more, live and ad-free on GCN+. Including all 259 gruelling kilometres of cycling's oldest race, Liège-Bastogne-Liège, on the 23rd of March. Plus that crucial Grand Tour form predictor, the Tour de Romandie, which kicks off on the 25th of April. Along with all this live action, GCN Plus has on-demand highlights and replays, proper analysis from ex-pros such as Magnus Backstead and Danny Rowe, and the exclusive World of Cycling show, a weekly roundup of the must-see moments and major talking points in road, gravel and cyclocross. GCN Plus also has a huge library of exclusive cycling films and documentaries with new releases added every week. You can watch it all on any of your devices and screens so you never need to miss a key moment again. All of our UK listeners can get 15% off an annual GCN Plus subscription by heading on over to gcn.eu forward slash cyclist15.